Before we get into tonight's Bible study, I wrote down eight things that I put under the heading of Don't Waste Your COVID-19. Um, these are not all uh, original with me, um, but they are ones that I certainly agree with, and I want to share some of them with you. Um, if you haven't faced COVID, you may. I hope not, but I don't know what the Lord has for you. But as I was contemplating it these few days I've been here, um, I just wanted to share some of the things that I have learned and have been taught by others who have faced it. And if it can help anybody out there as a Christian when you're going through it, I hope it will be an encouragement. I'll just try to briefly go through them and then we'll get to the main Bible study. Um, don't waste your COVID-19. Number one, recognize your COVID-19 is designed for you by God. I think one of the most comforting things about the doctrines in Scripture are, or the doctrine of Scripture of God's sovereignty is that he's always in control of everything. I think sometimes, and I don't know if you feel the same way, but we feel out of control. Um, it comes on you. You didn't think you were going to get it, and then it happens, and you're trying to be careful, and you're not sure you know, how it takes place, but God knows. He. And can I say it's not enough for, as a Christian, as you read the Bible, just to say God uses COVID because that's true. But I believe that the Bible would say he designs it. He controls it. He is in charge of all of it. And Job 42.11 says, And they comforted him, meaning Job, for all the disaster the Lord had brought upon him. And even though we as readers of the book of Job know that Satan uh, was the instrument God used, ultimately Job um, gave God, can I say it, the credit negatively um, for all the disaster because God is over Satan. He's over everyone and every detail and everything. So to know that it's not accidental and that we have to just respond to it, it's more than that God has designed it. And he had, therefore, he has purposes in it. So I, I want to relay some of the purposes, certainly not exhaustively, what possibly could he be using it for. Number two, recognize that one of the purposes God has designed in your COVID-19 and mine is to knock the props out from under our heart. Um, by that, so that we will lean on him and not anyone or anything else, so that we're Utterly dependent on him. That was really what I tried to stress in my Sunday morning and Wednesday messages um, during prayer week just last week, that we would be utterly dependent on God. We would trust in him. Psalm 20 verse 7 says, Some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. So our, our trust, as good as they are, and we're thankful to have medical people in our church. We're so grateful for doctors, nurses, um, people who run those clinics and all the things like that, testing people, all the front lines people. But our trust and hope is not in them, it's in God. Not in, not in a vaccine that might come, but in God. And so uh, COVID can knock all the props out, and that's good because we don't want to be standing on any other ground than the solid ground of God and His Word. Thirdly, recognize that our life is brief and death is certain. And I know that... <laughs> is a little bit on the morbid or negative side, perhaps, but I believe the Bible teaches us that uh, we should think about uh, our mortality. In fact, I often at funeral, funerals will teach a passage, Ecclesiastes 7.2, it says, it's better to go into the house of mourning than into the house of feasting. In other words, better to go to the funeral home than uh, a party. And the reason is because um, Solomon says, because this is the end of all men and the living We'll take it to heart. It is good for us as those who are still living and striving in this world to take it to heart that we don't have forever here, that our lives are limited 
and uh, we don't know what tomorrow may bring. And so getting COVID for me has made me think of I want to use every day that God has given me, however many or few may be, uh, to be spent for eternity. Four, recognize that Satan's designs and God's designs in our COVID-19 are not the same. That God is not the only one purposing things uh, when you get COVID-19. Um, by the way, his purposes overarch anyone else's. But that doesn't mean that Satan does, doesn't have a set of purposes of his own. And he does. And one of the chief ones would be for you to get angry with God or upset with God or your love for God would decrease and you would question God's authority or his right uh, to bring these designs and purposes to fruition in your life and you'd get upset and it would push you away from God. See, he's got purposes and I, I, I want to guard against those in COVID-19 and I hope that if that happens to you or you know others that you can encourage them with that uh, truth as well that this is a fight not just against COVID uh, but with covid uh, about what it can mean spiritually for your life as well as physically. Five, uh, you need to recognize that we need to read more about the from the Bible during times like this than we do about articles about our health and about COVID. It's nothing nothing wrong with being informed or being up on the latest news about how it spreads and what's happening. We need to take all the cautions and precautions that we should and be aware of what's available to us and what we should avoid um, but we can't let that be dominant. I found that the best thing, encouraging thing when you're sick is um, to read the Word of God, um, if you have the strength and ability to do that. And uh, that should be what prevails in our thinking and how we frame things and look at it in the perspective that we need is the Word of God. Six, recognize the needs of others even in your illness. There is a wonderful passage, if you want to take the time to read it, at the end of Philippians 2 about Epaphroditus, that he had been so sick and he almost died. And the Bible says that what concerned him the most when he was that sick is what that the Philippians had heard he had been sick and they were burdened for him and it was causing them problems. And that's pretty amazing. That is the selfless love of the cross that Jesus exemplifies at the beginning of Philippians 2. And his cross is what represents that. And so, you know, I want to... <clears throat> excuse me, I want to be able to think of others. And so I've been trying to do that and ask other people how their families are doing and check on others and text them and ask them what's going on and, and do things for other people even while you're sick. If you can do that, I know that's not always possible. Um, but it's good to for us not to just let the focus be on ourselves. Number seven, recognize that you don't just battle against COVID. I said that already, but with COVID-19, kind of already... Uh, said a few things about that, so I'll move on to the last one. Lastly, recognize that God has designed COVID-19 for missions. And, you know, COVID-19, if you get it or you get tested for it, not sure or you don't know yet, um, just think of it as uh, not just a time to just get a test and get the results, but this is a time that you may meet, meet people um, in an office, a doctor, someone giving you the test, the girl that gave me my COVID test, I immediately knew as soon as she started talking that she was from Ghana. And I, I told her I knew that accident. I mean that accent. And I, I she asked me. I said, so why I go to my in my church? We have families from Ghana. She said, where do you go to church? Of course, that gave me the introduction to tell her from Faith Baptist Church and so forth and so on. So you know, it's an opportunity to meet people who need Jesus. And uh, again, everything. Even Paul said in Philippians one, even that being in prison was an opportunity for the furtherance of the gospel. See it, see it that way. 
Um, those are just eight things that I think have stuck out to me and have learned and are, are, and are still learning to put into practice um, from experiencing COVID, and I hope that those can help others as well. If you would, take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Let me turn there while you're doing that. hope you have your Bible there. Just informally tonight, because that's how I feel standing here anyways, and then I hope you're able to enjoy where you are and be able to... We're going to look at a lot of verses tonight, so this is one of those ones where you're going to have to have your Bible and your fingers ready to go, because there's a lot of turning to different passages, uh, mostly, at least at the first half of it, in the Gospel of Mark, a few other places toward the latter half. But let me give you the main idea, so you can get an idea where I'm heading, and so this kind of each part will make sense to you. Um is you're a preacher, if you're a preacher, you always have a big idea. You know, the main uh, purpose of your sermon in one sentence, in other words. And so here's my one sentence um, idea. The cross of Jesus is not only the payment of our debt, but it's also the pattern of our discipleship. Let me say it again. The cross of Jesus is not only the payment of our debt, meaning our sin debt. It is that, and it is that, and glorious uh, to God's glory, it is that. Um, without that, there would be no need to talk about anything further. But the cross of Jesus is not only the payment of our debt, but it's also the pattern of our discipleship. And so I'm going to tell you that uh, both of them, and I'm going to prove it in detail in a little bit, um, both of them are emphatic in the Gospels and in the New Testament writings. Um, the cross of Jesus is not only what he did to die for us, but his cross is, only, is also in a different way as disciples, not as saviors, um, that we are willing every day to die to sin for him. Both of those are crucial. This isn't the first time in the last five years from the pulpit you've ever heard me say anything along those lines, but I try to repeat this fairly often because I believe it's the crux of what it means to be a Jesus follower. And uh, so we're going to look at it from a little different angle than we have before. And that's through Mark's story of Jesus. Now, if you're new to Mark's story of Jesus, um, if you read it and you read it carefully, it'll startle you in many ways. Uh, one of which is what I'm going to say tonight is by insisting, Mark insists that Jesus accomplishes God's saving purposes, not, not by performing some mighty act to subdue God's enemies. That's what the average Jew or Israelite would have thought. But that's not what Mark stresses. He doesn't emphasize that Jesus did some mighty act, act um, to be able to achieve God's purposes. Rather, Jesus achieved God's saving purposes by submitting himself to human hostility and violence. Paul even says it this way, even a cross death, which was the most torturous, shameful death possible. Even to that extent, he uh, was willing to submit himself to humility and hostility and violence and becoming, and I put a victim because we know that Jesus gave himself willingly and it was designed before the foundation of the world. Um, but from a human perspective, he gave himself willingly. He didn't fight back. He didn't struggle. He didn't try to escape the cross, but he gave himself that way, as Mark would say later in chapter 10, verse 45, as a ransom for many 
So this theme finds expression in Mark's gospel, and it does it in many ways. But one that I want to key in on focus for a little bit tonight is this main verb, and it's translated in hand over, where Jesus was handed over. Um, It's translated a lot of different ways, even differently in the ESV, which we use. In the NIV, New King James, King James, NASV, I mean... Pretty much any Bible you have, there might be a different way of saying it, which makes it a little harder to understand that each time the same word is being used, but I'm going to point that out to you so you can get it. So if you're taking notes, circling things and cross-referencing the first one all the way to the last one in Mark's Gospel that we're going to talk to, I'll make sure that it's as simple and clear as I can. Handed over is also translated betrayed, and that'll give you a little idea about what Judas was trying to do from the beginning. And it's also translated sometimes arrested. It's translated put in prison. And it's translated often he was delivered up. And so there are a number of translations. I may not even give them all to you there. Um, But I'm going to point out, but they all mean handed over. And the context of how it's used determines how the English comes out usually. Um, But it persistently by Mark and his gospel, it emphasizes that Jesus is allowing himself to be seized by the very forces of the people who crucify him. So it's, it's kind of handed over is you're giving yourself over willingly to violence or they're taking you, seizing you, and you succumb or submit to it. That's the kind of idea of it. So we're, what we're going to do is two things. We're going to trace all the uses of the verb handed over in Mark's gospel from beginning to end and how they're used uh, chiefly of Jesus, all right? And I want to show you what it means and how it works out and how even Jesus himself talked about it. And then I want to show you the surprising part that will start you a little bit about what that means for us in our area of discipleship and following Jesus. So let's tackle and unpack both of those things. First of all, let's survey the uses of hand over Um, in the beginning of Mark. So chapter 1 and verse 14, the very first reference to the verb handed over is used, believe it or not, of John the baptizer. Um, And it reads, Now after John was arrested, there's our word, if you're using the ESV. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And so there you go. John was put into prison, someone says, arrested. It's the word handed over. And so you get the idea, although the Bible doesn't say who he was handed over to, you get the idea he was handed over to Herod because we know what happens because later in Mark 6, uh, Mark tells you the whole story of what happened to John when he was handed over and how his head was cut off and everything that went with that and that whole sorted thing. So the idea, though, is... In this instance, because we know the word, it means John the baptizer was handed over to authorities and would have violence done to him. And we figure out later on that that violence was having being beheaded. Um, So we get a little of a prelude, um, a little foreshadowing, and we begin to get a little taste and understanding of what the content of the definition of this word really is all about. The second meaning, or the second usage, if you want to turn over, and I'll try to peruse these quickly, chapter 3 and verse 19, and it's a listing of the disciples that Jesus chooses, and they're all listed there by name in 18, chapter 3, 18, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, son of Altheus, Thaddeus, and Simon, and the last one is Judas Iscariot, and this little add-on is placed, this little appendage by his name, 
who betrayed him. Now there's foreshadowing. And the word betrayed him is the same word as arrest. We just looked at, again, they're the same word. It's handed over. So we understand with Judas as a name attached to it that he's foreshadowing that down the road that Jesus is going to suffer a similar fate as John the baptizer did. That someone is going to hand him over to the ruling authorities and some violent end is going to take place in Jesus' life. Although at this point, if you're reading the Gospel of Mark for the first time, as the original audience was, you wouldn't know what that was yet. All right? So we're learning a little bit about the word handed over and what it includes. The next one is a turning point in John's uh, Mark's Gospel. If you'll turn over to chapter 9 and verse 30. Mark chapter 9 and verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, now this is Jesus now using the word, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. That is our word. The Son of Man is going to be handed over to men, he says, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Again, so Jesus is saying, hey, now he's beginning to warn them. This is right after Peter's confession, which is pivotal in this book. He's saying he's the Messiah, he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. <coughs> and Peter says that, and now Jesus is going to begin a series of prophetic warnings to his disciples about what it means to follow him and what's going to happen to him. And he says that he himself is going to be handed over and his impending death will follow. Let's keep going. Stick with me. Matthew, Mark, sorry. Chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. Mark 10, 32 through 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. This is the last time. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, Again, it says, see, again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, same as last one, and the Son of Man will be delivered over, but this time we know who the ruling authorities are, to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and, here's a second use of the handed over phrase, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. So now we have two uses um, of it in, in, in Mark chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. So we're, get, we're getting more information to understand what it's going to mean when it happens to Jesus. So he's going to be handed over to ruling authorities, and we know those ruling authorities now are Jewish, the chief priests and the scribes, and... He says they're going to be some ruling Gentile authorities. So we are getting to understand as it closer he gets to Jerusalem. And the more he talks about it, the more detail we get of what it's going to mean when he's handed over. So he's going to be handed over to Jewish authorities and then to Gentile authorities. And they're going to mock him and spit on him, shamefully treat him and kill him. All right. So we're learning more about that as it gets closer, closer to the passion part of Mark's gospel fifth time and that is a group of them all right so we're going to see because now we're really getting close to jesus's actually being handed over we're going to see them come in groups chapter 14 has three times in a in one chapter it's used 
and then also three more times in chapter 15 as we actually get to the cross. All right, so let's look at those. Uh, Mark chapter 14 and verse 10 says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. That's our word. Betray. Handed over. So now we know who we know from the beginning, but that foreshadowing that we talked about back in chapter 3, that it was Judas Iscariot, now we're starting to see this handing over actually begin to take place. People are stepping into their positions uh, that they're going to do as part of all of this. And so Judas is seeking that opportunity to hand Jesus over. A few verses down, let's read a beginning in verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one of you will hand me over, one who is eating with me. And so look at verse number 21. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. So he says, woe is a word, not stop. It means it's a a chronic or an oracle of judgment. In other words, judgment is going to happen to the guy um, who ends up handing me over. So he's already pronouncing uh, God's curse and judgment on Judas Iscariot. Uh, because the events are now unfolding, they're they're taking place, and they're going to come rapidly. At the end of the chapter, or toward the end of the chapter, Mark 14, beginning in verse 41, and he came to the third time, and, and this is after, right at the close of Jesus' prayer time in the Garden of Gethsemane, before they're going to actually hand him over, literally. Um, and he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed, there it is, handed over into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, the one who is handing me over is at hand. So there you get a double usage again. So now we've moved from the beginning of the gospel and not knowing too much. Now we know exactly what it means for Jesus to be handed over. We know who's going to hand him over and who he's handing him over to. Um, But now we're going to find out in any more detail what it will result in for Jesus to be handed over. And that's where we see the next clump of references to the verb in chapter 15. So chapter 15 and verse 1. As soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council of the Sanhedrin. And they bound Jesus and led him away. And here it is. And delivered him over to Pilate. So remember the verse that said the Jews are he's going to hand over the Jews. Well, that's been accomplished. Now the next morning, uh, Jesus is going to be handed over to the Gentiles, just like was told by the Lord. And now Pilate, he's been handed over to Pilate. Pilate recognizes that the religious leaders are there not because Jesus has done anything wrong. He understands that Jesus is innocent. He says it multiple times throughout the Gospels. But he understands after talking to the religious leaders what the real motivation is. And he gives us that in Mark 15 and verse number 10. For he perceived, being Pilate, that it was out of envy that the chief priest had, here's our word, delivered him up. The reason they handed him over is they were envious. He was popular with the crowds. He spoke like no one ever spoke before. He had done all these miraculous things and he had quite a following and they did not. And the people loved him and it made him upset. 
And they thought that Jesus was going to spoil their whole game and all the things they had going on. And he was going to ruin it by upsetting the apple cart. And so they had to get rid of him. And so Pilate understood that, that the reason why he was handed over uh, was because they were envious of him. Another reference, that's the second one in chapter 15. But the third one is verse 15. And this is the actual taking place. It says, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, and again, our word, and he delivered him to be crucified. So we've had a sequence. Uh, Jesus was handed over to Jews, and the Jews handed him over to the Gentiles, uh, namely Pilate, and Pilate now delivers Jesus over to be crucified. And so, in summary, really, as we traced all of these in this little brief Bible study tonight, just taking the time to go through each one to give you an idea of what it means, Mark has placed repeated signposts. Now, again, try to remember this or think about this as if you're reading the gospel first and you don't know much about Jesus and what he did. So Mark puts from the beginning to the end of this book signposts all along the way. And here's what you got. Here's the first application, really, um, as far as Jesus's cross goes, is that by the time you get to the end, you can't say that the cross death of Jesus by the hand of the Romans and the Jews was something that was an unexpected, horrible tragedy. You, it wasn't. And the reason why we took the time to go through all of those was you need to see, and the readers of Mark needed to see, that this whole thing was planned. That this was God's design. That it didn't happen by accident. Jesus knew it was coming. He went to, coming. He went to Jerusalem because it was part of God's um, inscrutable, redeeming will. Uh, for mankind, so that our sins could, again, so that he could pay our debt. And so Mark makes it very clear that the reason Jesus died on the cross was to pay the debt for our sins. We could never pay it on our own. And so it wasn't something unexpected. It wasn't something just out of the blue that took everybody by surprise. It didn't take God or Jesus by uh, by surprise because the cross was designed for Jesus from the very outset, from the very outset, it is what he came to do. Now, listen, though, Mark's gospel also emphasizes something else, as do the rest of the gospels, especially the synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that is, is that Jesus dying on the cross is not the end of the story. In Mark's gospel, the cross also defines a pattern of discipleship for all those who would follow Jesus. So it's not the cross of Jesus is not just something that pays our debt, but it is the pattern of our discipleship. Mark repeatedly describes what discipleship as is as an act of following Jesus. I'll just really you don't have to turn there, just listen. Mark chapter one, verses sixteen through twenty, when he fall, calls the first couple disciples, he says, Follow me. And here's what the reason this says. And they left everything and followed him. Um, he said that to Levi, who was Matthew, who has the tax collector booth in Mark 2.14. And he came by and said, Levi, follow me. And it says, and he rose and followed him. Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. Jesus says to all those who, it says, who desire to follow him, that you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. So what Mark makes it very clear is, is that there is not only a cross for Jesus, but there is a cross for all of his disciples who would choose to follow him. 
in their lives. And so you get from this point on in the gospel, from Mark 8:34 on, you get the idea that to follow Jesus will entail a lot of personal, costly sacrifice. It's not going to always be easy. It's not going to just be a piece of cake. In fact, what you get from it is, is what Jesus knew about his cross, is that honestly, you should expect it. And, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. And then one more, Mark chapter 10, and if you read verses 23 through 27, you're going to find that Jesus is talking to Peter about that. And Peter says, see Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. And Mark does something in Jesus' response to Peter that the other two, Mark and Matthew, I mean, Luke and Matthew don't do. They all say the same thing, but Mark adds one little phrase to Jesus' response to Peter. When Peter says, see Jesus, we left everything and followed you. And Jesus says, yes, and you will receive a hundredfold and you will see houses and lands and family. And he lists all these positive things. Mark, though, he puts this one little phrase in the middle of all of that and it's negative. And amidst all that, he says, also with persecutions. And, and so Mark's gospel wants us to understand that Jesus is very clear in his instruction to his disciples that if you forsake everything and you follow me and you take up your cross, there's going to be a huge benefit to it in the future. But right now, right now, the expectation should be that it could include suffering and sacrifice and self-giving, even to the point of a death. And so lastly, please do take the time uh, to turn to this one, if you would. And that is Mark chapter 13 and verses 9 through 13. I want to take that verb. Remember, this is the startling part. Remember all those times we traced about Jesus being handed over. And we know what handed over means. And we know that what it led to, being handed over for Jesus, led to a crucifixion uh, on a cross. Now, I want to let you hear and, and try to hear it as if it's the first time for you. And maybe for some it is. Hear these words, knowing all that you know about what the word means and what it meant for Jesus. And now what it will mean for those who want to follow him. Mark chapter 13 and verse 9. Be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils. That's our word. Deliver you over. And you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. To bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And then when they bring you to trial. And here it is again. And deliver you over. Don't be anxious beforehand. What you're going to say. What Say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother, here's the third time, and brother will deliver brother over to death. So here we have three times in this little paragraph, right before they get to Jerusalem, before Jesus' crucifixion, here's what he wants to know. You follow me? You want to walk the same road I, I walk? I want you to know that if they handed me over there's a good possibility that you also will be handed over. And so he uses the same verb Mark does to describe Jesus being handed over to be crucified. And now he takes that same term and he applies it to his disciples being handed over because he wants them to know this. Listen, and he wants you and I to know this. 
that this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to be a disciple, is that whatever happens to Jesus, we can expect, if we're living for him, that it can happen to us. He was handed over. We could be handed over. He had a cross. We have a cross. Let me tell you another thing, and, and maybe clear up a little unusual circumstance. You remember when Jesus was going to the cross, um, a guy... Um, from the crowd whose name all the Gospels give it, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, synoptics, Simon of Cyrene. The Roman guards compel him to pick up Jesus' cross and bear it and carry it. Um, but what I thought was unusual is why the Bible puts this verse or two in there. Um, why was that so crucial? What's the meaning of it? Is there any great understanding that we should get from it? Uh, Matthew and Luke have almost identical um, verses about Simon of Cyrene carrying Jesus's cross, uh, but Mark's—I'm sorry, Luke's is different. Matthew and Mark are the same, but Luke is different. You know what Luke puts on there? He says that Simon of Cyrene carried Jesus' cross behind him. Now you might not think that's important until you also read Luke nine twenty-three, where Jesus tells his disciples that if you want to be my disciple. You must have, you must come behind me. Same word, meaning to follow. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And I think, in my estimation, only my estimation, that the reason the story, the one or two verses, and that's all, about Simon Cyrene is there, because he is a model of discipleship. That when Jesus is taking his cross, Simon is also taking his cross. It is a model or a picture of what the pattern of discipleship really is. Jesus is taking his cross and Simon is taking his. Now, I didn't say he was a model of, he was a, a perfect model or he's actually being a disciple, but he's a model of it, right? He's the picture of him carrying Jesus's cross is what Mark wants his readers to get, that that's not just Simon, that's you. And he, I would say, if Mark was here, I think he would say, and I, you don't need to be compelled like Simon was by the Romans, that you should pick it up gladly, see. And I, I think the story of Simon's in there, and that picture of him carrying Jesus' cross is because that's what our lives should picture. And, and the way that we live and respond to people, and, and, and when people disagree with us, and they hurt us and mock us and say evil against us and lie about us and and they're unfaithful to us. And in Jesus' case, like his own disciples, deny and betray him. We take up our cross um, and we deny ourselves, and, and that's really what it means uh, to be a follower of Jesus. And, and so I want you to think about as we go into 2021, I, I want you to think about what it really means in your life on a daily basis to follow that example. Jesus was handed over and he said this, if you follow me, you will be handed over. And 2 Timothy 3, 12, it says, and all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It, it's inevitable. And can I tell you, I'm no prophet, um, but in the days in which we live and the years coming, um, our liberties may be taken. Um, some of the freedoms that we've enjoyed and have enjoyed for many, many, many years it could be limited or taken away altogether. And to speak the way we speak about God and say this truth as we do um, may cost us, some of us. 
uh, many of us, and more than you might ever believe. And the time to prepare for that is now. And can I tell you this? It shouldn't be surprising to us. Peter said, don't think it's a, it should be a surprise, the fiery trials that await you, because our Lord was handed over. And if you are following him, you may be handed over. And the time to get your discipleship down is now. The time to be committed and to choose to be the kind of follower that you're going to be is now. Um, so when the time comes and you're called upon to be handed over, that you'll be able to follow Jesus and say with those who even gave their lives in the book of Revelation that they follow the Lamb wherever he went. Let's pray. Father, we're just so grateful that uh, your word gives us these solid, clear examples, models to follow. Um, God, we don't know all that lies ahead and what it might mean for us um, if we assume uh, being your disciples every day and follow you and take up our cross. Um, but what we do know is that in little ways, not just the big ones that might come, but even more importantly, the little ones that we can have every day in our relationships with our spouse and our, our children, with people that we are at church, people that uh, disagree with us, people who may even consider themselves our enemies, um, people who don't agree with us on all kinds of issues. Uh, Father, we have a chance uh, to demonstrate the substitutionary self-giving love of Jesus and all of those responses and our attitudes and our words on the internet and in our interactions with people. Oh, Father, please help us to expect that we will suffer, be persecuted, that we will lose things in this life, only to know that uh, you have the victory uh, through your cross, death, and resurrection. Father, may we also, in turn, take up our cross and follow you. And we'll thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.